Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. Ready to, ready to get into some, some new territory? We're going to get through chapter one today of Ephesians. We've been talking about finding our identity, finding our identity. Now, Ephesians is a really unique book in this regard because in Ephesians, uh, repeatedly, chapter after chapter, Paul spends time telling the church in Ephesus who God has made them to be. And so it's, it's really uh, an important book for us addressing this issue and um, and I'm, I'm excited to, to continue to investigate with you today. And so have your Bibles open, have your pens ready. Uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, I suppose that most of you have heard of the term identity crisis, right? Yeah. Identity crisis. It's the idea that throughout the length of one's life, we experience moments uh, where we are uncertain uh, about who we are in relation to the people and the circumstances that we find ourselves in, right? And so we look around and we're like, oh my gosh, how the heck did I get here? Who the heck am I? And we all have moments like this, okay? And, and I think um, it would be apropos for us to maybe look a little bit closer at where these identity crisis moments actually originate, right? Where do they come from? Uh, when we experience them, what are their origins? Well, a lot of times, our identity crisis comes when we are emotionally confused, emotionally confused, when we feel anxious or depressed and, and we're not sure about, you know, why uh, things are the way that they are or, or we're not um, certain about what today will bring or what tomorrow will bring. And we have these moments in our lives where we just feel emotionally confused, right? And, and it's when we're emotionally confused, a lot of times we just, we kind of like, if we follow that negative or critical trail backwards, we come to the place where we're asking ourselves, well, man, I don't understand this situation. Do I even understand who I am? Right? That, that happens. And so, you know, that's the thing about emotional confusion. It's confusion. We can't always understand where it comes from. We can be triggered by something someone says or, or someone, the way someone treats us at work or something like that. And then suddenly we begin doubt, doubting all kinds of things in our life. And uh, these depressive, anxious feelings come kind of out of nowhere, right? And so in those moments, we can have an identity crisis. We also come to a place of identity crisis when our pursuits feel empty. When the things that we're devoting ourselves to don't, don't feel like they have a lot of value. Um, you know, this could be in your work. It could be in your family. It could be in your ministry. You might feel this way. Uh, maybe, maybe you function in a role that you know is good. Like you're, maybe you're doing a job that you're like intellectual. You're like, I, I really enjoy this. I'm good at this. Okay? But it can still feel empty sometimes. Have you ever felt like, like you know intellectually. Like the thing that I'm pursuing, the thing that I'm devoting myself to, up here it makes sense. But in my heart, I feel empty, like it's not bringing any real value to me. Uh, maybe, maybe you're passionate about what you do, but, but somehow you feel empty inside. This could even happen in ministry. Maybe discipleship feels this way from time to time. You know, you're real excited when you sign that cost of discipleship form, but six months in, you know, you might have a moment in your mentorship where someone's investing in you and you're, you, sec, uh, you, you begin second guessing the process. And you start saying to yourself, well, I, I know that this is important, but I'm just not feeling it. I'm feeling empty. You might feel this way about LFBI or ministry that you're involved in, and things become routine. When they become routine, they, they kind of lose their shimmer, don't they? Maybe it's, maybe it's you're suddenly uncomfortable with the relationships that you find yourself in, you know? And I think a lot of people struggle with it, and I've seen a lot of it in counseling recently, uh, in our ministry, I've seen people who take on condemnation in their relationships with other people in ministry, people that they know that they're family with, uh, they kind of imagine contention. They, they, they come to a place where like maybe there was a weird interaction or there was discomfort in, in, in the way that you engage with someone in Bible study or someone challenged you. Oh, God forbid someone would challenge you, right? And then suddenly you feel discomfort in your relationships. And I know that people feel this way about me even, right? Uh, people will come up to me and they'll say, hey, I really needed to talk to you, but can I confess 
that I'm a little bit intimidated to talk to you, which is absurd, first of all, because I, just, I put my pants on the same way everybody else does, and I'm, I'm as big a loser as anybody else. So, so you, you shouldn't feel that way, but, but we have these moments where we're unsure, right, uh, of the way someone else feels about us or how we feel about them, and, and this happens, you know, in every facet and, and function of, of life. Um, maybe even you're discovering that your friendships that you've had in the world um, are not healthy, you know? It's really interesting when you come into the family of God, you make all these new friends and you know that they're, they're good for you. Like these, these are the people that are actually good for me. But you have these relationships and these friendships that go way back, like middle school and high school and college and people that you've built relationships with. And now as you're beginning to pursue the Lord, you look back at those relationships and these friendships and you have to say to yourself, well, maybe this friendship has never really been that healthy for me. Maybe this person is not pushing me towards following Christ. And so now there's, there's a feeling, there's a, there's a beginning of identity crisis, right? When, when relationships change or, or come into uncomfortable places. Maybe there's instability uh, that's revealed in the transitions of your life, okay? Uh, that could look like maybe your first year of college. Some of you are in your first year at, at your college. Or, or maybe after you graduate, looking for your first job. And you take that first job and you realize, oh my gosh, I don't know how to do anything. Like, I've answered like seven emails in my whole life, and now they want me to, all I'm doing all day long is answering emails. What is going on, right? Uh, I've, heard so many, I've heard so many people say, like, like college-age students, be like, I don't do email, and I never will. <laughs> Which is just so, such an absurd claim, because the whole world communicates this way, right? You thought you were just going to, like, DM people for the rest of your life. <laughs> But, but these transitions, they, they reveal in us the, the, some insecurities, and, and they create instability sometimes, you know? Maybe when, uh, when you start dating, uh, and, 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 or maybe when you get married, or maybe when you have your first child, all of these transitions, they have a way of revealing these moments of crisis in our identity. Does this resonate with you guys? Does it make sense? Now, all of us have these moments of identity crisis. But these moments of struggle aren't actually a crisis at all. That's the good news. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, such as is common to man. Right? This, th- th- these are things that everyone experiences. Right? And just knowing that these are things that everyone else experiences causes you to recognize that maybe you shouldn't be so alarmed about all these difficult questions and moments and But further than that, further than that, identity crisis, listen, get this down. Identity crisis is really just your identity calling. Your true identity is calling. It's calling out to you. The moments where you feel this insecurity or or uncertainty, these are actually just moments for the Lord to remind you of who you really are. Identity crisis is just an opportunity to gain God's perspective And to reassess what our divine calling really is. And this is what we want to get to today. We've been studying Ephesians for about six weeks now. And we're talking about how the Lord can help us to better understand who we are in light of who he is. And in Paul's letter to Ephesus, we've discovered that that understanding who we are must begin with gaining God's perspective. We have to gain his divine mind. And that was defined for us over the last couple weeks as gaining wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. That these are the three things that we need in order to have a comprehension of our world the way that God comprehends it. In order to have his divine mind, we need to have wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Now, this is a spirit-led work. And it requires faith. It requires prayer. It requires yielding. And this is a lifelong pursuit that you will always be engaging with. And so I pray that we, we take this series really seriously because I believe it's what we need. I, I, I want to just speak frankly with you for a second. You know, the reason that we went through 1 Corinthians, we spent two years in that book, y'all. And uh, the reason we went through that is because I thought it would be an opportunity for us to address holiness issues in our ministry. 
I mean, 1 Corinthians has a way of exposing like all of like the minute problems in our world and in our lives, right? It calls out everything, like sexual depravity, like we got into all that business. We talked about how to treat one another. We talked about what real love really is. Like we talk about all kinds of stuff. And here's the thing, frankly, frankly, y'all, we're still struggling. We're still struggling with holiness. And I'm, I'm praying that our study in Ephesians would cause you to really consider what it is that you want in life. What is it you really want? Do you really want God's mind? Do you really? Well, let's find out. We're going to find out today. Today, we're going to consider the idea that once we, once we gain godly comprehension, once we start getting God's mind, once we start seeing things from God's vantage point, point what is it that we're going to see? What are we going to actually see? How, how will God's mind in our mind, God's heart in our heart, how will that illuminate our reality? That's what we're going to address. Let's pray, and then we will get into it. You guys are alive. You were real alive during worship. Now you're looking dead. <laughs> that, that ain't right, okay? You, you, you used up all your energy, okay? Focus in. Let's get focused. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we need you. We love you. We know that uh, preaching without your word at the center of it is vain. It's vain activity. And so, Lord, I, I pray uh, that the time of study that I've, I've had in, in this passage, uh, that, Lord, I wouldn't somehow find a way of, of preventing or, or uh, you, know, uh, you know, superseding uh, your text with my opinions and my thoughts. I'm, I'm weak. Um, I'm nothing without you. Uh, you, are, you are the man, <laughs> and I love you. I adore you. I, I thank you so much for what Jesus Christ did for me, and I pray that our time together would reveal uh, ultimately who Christ is to us. And if there are any people here today, I, I see a lot of visitors and uh, a lot of people who've maybe just been coming for a few weeks. Lord, if there's anybody here um, who's unsure about where they stand with you, or what they believe about your book, or what they believe about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give them the boldness and the confidence to ask for help, um, to, to, get, to get the word open, to look at the Bible, and to ask it the hard questions uh, that it deserves to be asked. We love you, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us and, and bless this time, make it profitable. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's begin by reading in verse 15, just to recap a little bit. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Okay, now here's, here's the new content for today. Why? Why do we need wisdom? Why do we need knowledge? Why do we need the eyes of our understanding to be enlightened? That ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us word who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body and fullness of him that filleth all in all. So, so Paul here in, in, in this portion of our study, he prayed that the church in Ephesus would be full of wisdom and knowledge and, and that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. But to what end? To what end? Paul prayerfully desired that we would have God's divine mind, but to, to what purpose, to what fulfillment? To the end that you might know three very important things that we're going to study today. The first being this, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Second, that you may, may know that what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints is. 
And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? So we're going to look at all of these things right now. And we're going to begin with the idea of the hope of his calling. And so before we can dig into that, we have to first ask ourselves, what is a calling? Scripturally speaking. Now remember, we talked about this when we talked about knowledge. That, that when we are believers and we're looking at the word of God, we want his definition for things. We need his defining words. We need to understand what he means when he says something. We don't want to come and presume that we understand everything and we, you know, we superimpose our worldly definitions on the text. So we want to begin by considering what does it mean to have a calling. Now, if you remember two fall retreats ago, I spent time at the very beginning of our series addressing this issue of calling. And we discovered that there were four different ways that you could see the word calling used in Scripture. The first one is this, is that a call can mean that you're just referring to something or someone, right? You're just calling, like referring to, this is Seth. I'm calling him by his name, okay? Right? Speaking of that, Genesis 4.26 says, And to Seth, to him also, there was, a, there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Do you feel any pressure to name your firstborn Enos? You thought about that? It's a good name. It's a good name. But, but so, so there, there's how the word, used, the, the word called is used, calling a, a name, right? The second way that the word called is used in Scripture is that it can, it can mean to proclaim or, or to state your plea or, or to declare your allegiance, to cry out in need, all right, to put your faith in. And so if you continue on with that exact same verse in Genesis 4.26, it says, And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called him Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And so there's a sec- in the same passage here, we find a different use of the word call, which is just simply to, to declare your loyalty to, right? That you believe in, that you've put your faith in or trust in. And so that's what we see here is that in uh, the generation of Seth and Enos, that men began to call on the name of the Lord. The third use of this word is to call can be to, to, to you know, this is God's calling, right? This is God's calling on us. And that is to be invited to receive him and to follow after him. All right, so that's another use of the word calling. An example of that usage is here in 2 Timothy 1.8. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. We just covered this today. Who hath saved us, speaking of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So the gospel is a call on our life to receive Jesus Christ. All right, that's what that is. And then the fourth use of the word call can refer to God's divine invitation for you to engage in his work, to actually do the doing of a disciple, to walk it out, to live like you've received Christ, right? He's invited you to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and he is inviting you to walk with him. And so now, now in the case of the passage that we're in, I believe that God is referring to these last two forms of the word call. These last two versions of the word calling apply here. I believe that this calling refers to his invitation for us to follow him and engage in his work, to obey him, to take him at his word and to follow after him as disciples of Jesus Christ, so that ye may know what is the hope of his calling. Okay, so we know that we're supposed to follow Jesus, right? That's what Christians do. They follow Jesus. That's that's what we're supposed to do. Okay, we get that we're supposed to live according to what the Bible says. We get that. We're supposed to obey the things that this book tells us to do and to act, the behaviors. This, we're supposed to obey this book, right? But what does it mean to have hope of this calling? You know, hope is such an important word in the Bible. Because the Christian is nothing without hope. The Christian has has. has 
staked their lives on something that they can't see. I wasn't there when Christ rose from the grave. So I have to stake my whole life, my whole belief system, my whole ideology on something I can't see, but I believe based on evidence. That is hope. That is hope. Hope Hope means that you desire some good thing and believingly expect a favorable outcome. That's what it means. I think we can establish a proper understanding of this idea of the hope of his calling by looking at the first mention of the word hope in Scripture. Right? I think we can learn a lot about this idea of the hope of his calling from looking at the first time that it's used. Now, oddly enough, I was surprised by this, that the word hope doesn't show up anywhere in the Bible until you look like you're mouthing it. Do you know? Oh, you look like you knew. I would have been really impressed. I didn't know. You don't see the word hope until Ruth, the eighth book of the, the, eighth book of the Bible. Now, I think this is really interesting. Did you know that? You knew. Okay. Quit being smart. I know, we, Mensa and all, I know. I told, I told Eric this week, he, he, I swear, he had Brian Bustos convinced that he was in Mensa for like three years. <laughs> ask him. Ask him. Okay, so, so we, see the, we see this word hope pop up in the very first chapter of Ruth. And it's interesting because, you know, we never see this word in any of the other forms. Hoping, hopeth, you know, all of these. We don't see it anywhere else. You know, we sure see the word covenant a lot. We, we see the word promise show up multiple times before we get here. So, so God is making covenant with his people, but, 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 but there's no hope until the story of Ruth. Now, now, in that story, Ruth is a young widow. For those of you who aren't familiar with the story, Ruth is, the, is a, a young widow with no hope of marriage prospects. All right? She's poor and she's destitute. She, she has just lost her husband. And she is left with only two options in the whole world. What is she going to do now? Now that she has no money, she, there's, a, there's a depression, there's a famine in the land. Her husband is no longer there to provide for her. And it's just her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she's looking around and she's got two options. Two options. The first option is to either leave her mother-in-law, Naomi, and go back to her pagan city of origin because she was a, a Gentile woman she was from a heathen land. She could go back to, to her pagan community and worship her false gods and hope for a new husband among her own kindred. That was option number one. Option number two was that she could follow her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Judean territory, continue worshiping Jehovah as she had learned to do, and hope for a husband among her mother-in-law's kindred people. These are her options. And after Ruth's husband had died, there's this weird exchange, this difficult exchange. You can see it, it's probably a tearful exchange between Ruth and Naomi. And, and Naomi is so sad. And she tells Ruth, Look, look, you don't want to follow me. I have nothing to offer you. I'm too old to have children. I mean, if I if I wanted to bear a son. And I wanted you to marry him? What are you gonna do? Wait around for him to grow up? Like there's no this is not a good option for you. This is what Ruth 1.12 says. Turn again, my daughters, both both Ruth and, and, and the other uh, daughter-in-law, go your way, for I am too old to have an husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have an husband also tonight, and should also bear sons. Would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would you stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. And so what she's saying is that, look, there's no hope with me. In our best laid plans, like, there's no hope. There's no hope for fruitfulness. There's no hope for usefulness. I have nothing for you. And yet we know from the story that ultimately, while there was no hope in the flesh, there was hope in the kindred redeemer. The story continues. 
Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So this is the, the end of our story. I'm jumping ahead, all right? I like to do that, right? Like I have no, I'm not interested in watching, I'm not DVRing the Chiefs game. I'm going, when I leave here, I'm going to look at what the final score is and I'm going to be content with that. <laughs> right? I don't, I doesn't, like I want to know, I want to know what the end of the story is. Do you want to know what the end of Ruth says? Okay. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13 says, Bo, so Boaz, that's, that's her new husband, the kindred redeemer, took Ruth and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her a conception, and she bare a son. And the women uh, said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life, and a nourisher of thine old age for thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons hath borne him. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. And the women, uh, the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of, of, of Jesse, the father of David. So, so here we have Naomi producing. Here we have Naomi bearing fruit. Here we have hope. Here we have a hope in the calling. Now, what is there to learn from this? The hope of his calling, that's this, is the knowledge. It's the knowledge, it is a, is a wholehearted belief that we should faithfully anticipate that God will save us, sanctify us, and make us to be fruitful. That is the hope of his calling. And many of us have this calling. We have this calling on our life, but we have it without hope. So we labor and we, and we strive and, and we're frustrated in the work of ministry. Many of us know that we have a calling on our life, but very, quite a few of us don't have any hope in that calling. See, there's a distinction. God's trying to communicate something to us here. He's trying to communicate to us that there is a hope of his calling. Other, others of us have hope. We have hope, but without any sense of purpose or calling in our lives. So we wait and we wait on the fruit. We wait and we wait on the blessing. We wait and we wait to feel good or to feel right about things, and it never comes. Because we don't engage in the work of the ministry. We have hope, but we don't live in the calling. I mean, how many of us as Christians want to be fruitful? Want to be useful? Want to be blessed? How many of us truly want to be used by God? Well, I say to you, what hope do you have without obedience to your calling? And what good is obedience without hope? Hope that he loves you. And he wants to make use of you and bless you. This is what 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says. Or saith he it altogether for our sakes. For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope. And that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. Okay, so here's what's missing from so many Christian lives. This is the thing that I think wisdom and knowledge and understanding provides to us. There are so many Christians in this world that believe they're called to some sort of work, some sort of religious activity. But they have no hope in the person of Jesus to provide them with any sort of fruitfulness. They know what they're supposed to do but they're barren in their activity. But then on the flip side of that, there are so many hopeful prospects in Jesus. You know, these are like, you know, Jesus is my boyfriend people, right? They listen to Caleb all day, and they're full of, you know, it's positive Christian radio, okay? So they listen, to the, you know, they're excited, and they're happy, and, and, they've, and they've, they, they're, they're excited about Jesus but they're unwilling to engage him at the level of his calling. They lack obedience. And so they're completely content with sitting in pews week by week and, and coming and being a part of church. They have hope, but they have no desire to obey Christ in the hard things and to go his way, to, to join him in the fellowship of his suffering. Because Christianity has to feel good and has to feel prosperous. Listen to me. Christianity doesn't have to feel prosperous to be prosperous. Our definitions are jacked. Our definitions are so messed up. There are so many people listening to YouTube pastors with desperate hope 
that Jesus will give them money, that Jesus will make them prosperous in this world, that he'll provide them with happiness, that they'll get married one day, that they'll have a house and they'll have a nice car, and that things will look good for them in a very temporal and selfish way. That's not prosperity. That's not fruitfulness. That is no hope. That is no biblical hope. See, the hope that we looked at in Ruth is the idea that, that God has called us to obey him the way, the way that Ruth and Naomi did, to obey him and hope for something bigger than we could ever imagine for ourselves. That is the hope of his calling. Listen, here, here's the key point. God wants us to find hope in the invitation to follow and obey him. It's real simple. Most of our identity problems actually are really, really simple. God wants us to find hope in the invitation to follow him. Psalm 31, 24 says, Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all ye that hope in the Lord. And now, Lord, what, 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 what weigh I for? What, what, why am I waiting? My hope is in thee. 42.5 says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. 119.114 says, Thou art my hiding place and my shield. I hope in thy word. 135 says, I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. You know, many of us struggle with our identity we struggle to see our world the right way because we don't have hope of his calling. We have a hope of our calling. We prefer our calling over his. We prefer fruitfulness as we define it, prosperity as we define it, not as he defines it. We would prefer to make our own plan and simply hope that he blesses it rather than follow the hope of his calling and know that he will bless it in his way. But hope in his calling, hope of his calling, means that even though you can't see the end from the beginning, you still choose to follow. I mean, you guys don't know what your lives are going to be like. You got so much of your identity is staked on what you believe or are convinced your life is going to look like. Like you got it all figured, you got it all planned out. You got a five year, 10 year, 15 year plan. How's that going? How's that going, by the way? No, not working out the way you thought? Oh, yeah. You thought you'd, you know, be married and have six kids by now, you know, living in a mansion, married to a doctor. And the reason that we think that way, but the, because, because, you know, the, the reason that we, that we hope in his calling and not in our own is because your hope as a believer, as a Christian, isn't in a calling. It's in his calling. It's not just a calling, it's his calling. See, there's a, there's a man behind the calling that legitimizes it that makes it worthwhile. The one that bled and died for you, the one that rose from the grave, the one that defeated death on your behalf, the one that forgives you of your sins. He is the one that's backing the calling. It's more than just your calling or a calling. It's his calling, and that's what makes it worth it. That's what makes it worthy of hoping in. That's what makes it worthy of putting our love and our passion and our zeal and our devotion and our faith and our yielding it deserves all of that because he's the one that's backing it. It's his blood that signed the contract. He staked everything on you. And he loves you. And he has good things for you. And if it's his calling on your life, then you know it will be blessed. Romans 8, 24 says, For we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, 
why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it? Are you patient? Are you patiently waiting on the Lord? I mean, you went as far as believing in a God that you can't see. And you looked at the evidence. You, you looked into the face of his word and you said, I believe. Why have you abandoned that? Why is it, why is it now that you are a Christian? That somehow you are looking for hope in other places. No, look back at the face of his word and consider what is the hope of, your, of, of his calling on your life. He's called us. He's called us to be saved. And he's called us to be full of hope of this very thing that he which begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let him finish what he started. There's so many of us that are withholding from God. I mean, I know it right, right now in this room. There's, a, there's plenty of people. It's amazing to me how many people sign up for discipleship, but then don't actually want to obey God. There, there's so many people who love the, love the idea of obeying God or love the idea. Some, some, some sort of, you know, in your mind, you thought that, you know, this discipleship thing, it was going to be great. It was going to be fun. You're going to make some friends. It's going to, you know, church is cool. I like it. It's a good time. It's a good time. Okay, listen to me. <laughs> Quit wasting your time. Quit wasting your time. Quit, quit, quit making that, that activity purposeless. What are you hoping in? If your hope is that you would somehow be integrated into a fun and exciting church, let me, let me tell you right now, we're going to fail you. And if your hope is somehow in, uh, you know, uh, building friendship or building a network or making your life enriched in some way, listen to me, we're going to fail you. And if along the way you've decided that your hope is in your job and, and, you know, God wants you to have a good job because, you know, you got to tithe and you got to do stuff. It's, you know, it's how you become mature. And you devote all your time and your energy into your job so that you actually refuse to give God what belongs to him. Your Christianity becomes vain. See, God, you know, if we have wisdom and knowledge and understanding, guess what? We get his perspective, we get his vantage point, and suddenly we can, we can actually, in our, in the, in our uh, spiritual mind, see the beginning from the end. That no matter what life looks like, no matter what hardships come or what difficulties arise or, or when things don't go our way or don't go as planned, listen to me, life is still good because God's got a plan for you. Yes. Life is still wonderful, it's rich, it's joyous. Because he's put you on this path and he's made your life to be an adventure. You've got to get away from the calling you have for your life and get into the hope of his calling. This is what wisdom and knowledge and understanding produces. But what else does it produce? What other insights does God give, uh, God's mind provide us when we get his vantage point? What other things can we know when we understand his ways and thoughts? We can know what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The riches of the, the glory of his inheritance in the saints. It's kind of a weird, weird phrase, isn't it? Well, let's look at it. So we, we've already considered in our study in Ephesians this idea of inheritance. We've addressed this briefly, didn't we? Remember we talked about the, the inheritance, the blessings that we get in heavenly places, what, what God has afforded us in eternity future, right? He's, he's got some things set aside for us that are glorious and wonderful and, and rich. We've already established in our study that, that part of our identity is simply knowing that God has prepared blessings for us in heavenly places. We, we know that as saved believers, we've hit the eternal jackpot. That what God has given us in his son, Jesus Christ, is only just amazing. Titus 3, 4 says, but after that, 
the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. By, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Pretty wonderful. That's a good thing to know. And that affects the way in which we live. Knowing that God has good things for us in eternity future should build confidence on us and cause us to live in a way, right? And we also know from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and other places in Scripture that our heavenly reward is to some degree contingent on whether or not we choose to obey Christ in this life. 1 Corinthians 3.23 says, Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. So we also know that there is greater reward and inheritance in heaven for those who choose to obey Christ in this life. Believers who've said, you know what, my life isn't my own. I don't want to live that nominal Christian life. I don't want to be a pew sitter. I want to live in the hope of his calling. I want to devote my life and my energy and my resources to following Jesus Christ. And then they do that. When they stand before Christ in heaven, there is a greater inheritance waiting those individuals. They didn't earn their way into heaven, but there's a way in which we earn reward. Does this make sense to everybody? So we know this. We, we know this. The knowledge that God has provided for us beyond this life and into, the, in, into eternity future is, is critical. But have you ever asked yourself, what does Christ get in this? Probably not, because you're so busy thinking about you. Like, this is great. But what does Christ get in this deal? I mean, to me, he's getting the short stick, right? In my mind, it's, it's, it's not a, you know, for him, it's not a reward worth all the work. I mean, what benefit is there for Christ in having us? I mean, we know the benefit in having Christ. We know the inheritance and the riches that we receive. We know the glorious, the, the, the glorious nature of, of what we get in heavenly places. But what does he get in us? I mean, we're, I mean aren't we just kind of terrible? I mean, I mean, look at what you've done this weekend. Right? I mean, think about all the things that you got done, you know? We're kind of slothful. We're kind of ignorant. We treat people poorly. We're filthy. We're made of flesh. I mean, what is God getting in this deal? Well, the passage says it plainly, actually. That he has riches of the glory of his inheritance in who? The saints. But you say to yourself, well, how could that be? How could I possibly hold that much value to God? How is it that he loves us that much? Well, he does. He does. He loves us enough that he sent his son, Christ, to die on a cross to purchase us out of our sin. I mean, that's how much he values us. You know, I, I was thinking about this. I couldn't help but think about my relationship with my children. And, you know, uh, Shepard's starting to get older. And uh, so Shepard's at basketball practice. And he's with all of his buddies, okay? He's 12 now. He's at basketball practice. Mom comes into the gym. And he leaves his buddies behind to go give his mom a hug in front of all of his friends. No concern at all. Not even thinking twice. Now, at age 12, I'd have been like, what's up, Mom? <laughs> and I think, I think for myself, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that I had, I had a messed up relationship with my father. See, in my father, I didn't have a whole lot of value. And some of you may relate to this. 
My father was willing to abandon me. My father was willing to to disappear and not be involved in my life at all. My father, I remember, I hadn't talked to my dad for about four years, and he called on my 16th birthday. I I didn't even want to talk to him. My mom's like, your dad's on the phone. And when I got on the phone, this is how he started. Hey, I just wanted to call you to say happy birthday and then I'm not getting you anything this year. And in my mind, I'm like, why you have to say, you haven't gotten me jack squat in like six years anyway. Like you, you didn't even have to say it. He just wanted to make sure he knew how little he valued me. And some of you may be able to relate to that. In the world, you have relationships, maybe with your parents, where it's like, there isn't affection, there isn't love. You wouldn't just embrace them and, and, and hug them and, in public and, and you don't have that kind of relationship. But listen to me, I want you to understand something. You have that and so much more in Jesus Christ. Whatever your dysfunction is with affection and love and, and the brokenness of your relationships in this world, listen to me, Jesus Christ and relationship with him mends all of it. And you know why? Because he loves you more than you could possibly ever love him. I mean, no matter how much love you muster up in your heart, no no matter how much you meditate on him and think on him and all the wonderful things that he's done for you and and all the things that await you in the inheritance and, and his love poured out, no matter how much you meditate on those things, you won't truly understand how much he loves you until you stand face to face with him. But in the meantime, I wonder if we get wisdom and knowledge and understanding, if we could get a glimpse if we could get his vantage point, if we could get his mind, then maybe we could understand just how valuable we are to him. And that might inform our identity. That might affect our confidence. That might actually make us fearless. Listen, I mean, we are his are the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1.13 says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your, of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the, the, the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. And we read about this. We read this verse so selfishly, don't we? We, we look at it and we say to ourselves, well, he's given us a seal of, it's good doctrine, guys. He's sealed us with his Holy Spirit. We know that we have security in him. We know that we can't lose our salvation because he's put a seal of his Holy Spirit on us. We are, we are promised to him. Um, we are his inheritance, though. And listen to what it says. We are, we are his purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Well, let's investigate this a little bit further. This is how, this is how love, uh, deep his love is for us. Is that his glory and our glory are tied together. His love for his people is expressed so wonderfully in song, uh, the Song of Songs and through Solomon's love letter. He declares, you know, Solomon declares on his wedding day, this is a picture of our relationship with Christ. Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. There is no spot in thee. So when he sees us, he doesn't see your weakness. He doesn't see your sin. From his perspective, you've been washed completely clean. You know, one of the beautiful things about marrying the couples in this ministry and, and standing up on the stage, standing next to the groom is when the, when the bride comes into the room and everybody stands up and they arise, everybody's smiling and flashing pictures. My daughters, you know, they're young enough now where they still lean over and they're like, she looks like a princess, you know. But, but when I get to do a wedding, I get to stand next to the groom and I get to see the change in his expression as he watches his bride come down the aisle. There's a a joy that overtakes him and and he begins to see her 
in a way that he's never seen her before. This, this woman now belongs to him. Their relationship from this moment forward will forever be different. And when he sees her, he sees her as pure and clean and as wonderful. And she is the only thing that he could ever want in life. Yeah, say amen. Then the next, <laughs> then the honeymoon's over. You're like, man, she sure is, doesn't clean like I thought she would. <laughs> you know what I mean? Boy, I, thought she, I imagined her as a better cook than this. <laughs> but you know why we think that way? Because we're stupid and we're fleshly. When Jesus sees his bride, he sees her spotless. That's how much love he has for you. Christ purchased himself a bride, and just like Boaz with Ruth, he gained the love of his life, the object of his affection. The church is his reward. And the truth here suggests that Christ will not enter into the fullness of his glory until the church and him are reunited. Check this out. This is what Jesus prays in John chapter 17, verse 22. And the glory which thou gavest me, this is Jesus talking to God the Father. He says, the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also, whom thou, how, whom thou given hast, the, sorry guys, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. So he's like, he's talking to God, the Father, and he's saying, God, I, I would that they would be with me. He prays this knowing that he's going to have to wait 2,000 years. You understand? He's praying this, he's, he's, Lord, I want to be with them. Isn't that what we want? That they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. In other words, there's an aspect for which God's, Jesus' glory cannot be fully manifest until he's with his bride. Until he's with the people that he's purchased. See, this is how much he loves you. Christ will be glorified in us just as we will be glorified in him. Second Thessalonians 1.10 says, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. In other words, there's a day that's coming where he will receive his saints and he will be glorified in them. So what's the point of all this, okay? So wisdom and knowledge and understanding, what does it provide? It provides us with a vantage point that teaches us this, key point. God wants us to find solace in knowing that he values us greatly. He wants us to find joy and peace and rest knowing that despite how hard our lives get, there's one that loves us. He cares for us deeply. He gave his life for us. He's got a plan for us. Our hope is in him. And you know what? Our glory is in him and his glory is in us. It's in us as a purchased bride. Precious and spotless. Now finally here, we learn um, that, you know, wisdom and knowledge and understanding, we, 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 they provide us with uh, you know, this hope of his calling, it, it provides us with this knowledge of his glory in us, his divine love for us. But this third insight that we, that we gain or we supposedly gain here is that we should know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. And that leads us to this next key point. God wants to find, us to find strength in his strength. God wants us to find strength in his strength. God wants us to know what is his divine strength and that it is available to us at every turn. Okay? 
Are you guys with me? Does this make sense? Knowledge, wisdom, understanding. What do they give us? What do they give us? They provide us with the hope of his, call, of his calling on our lives. They give us hope in that. It provides us with the knowledge that he loves us more than we could ever love him. And he finds glory in us. And, and, it provides us with knowledge that his strength is our strength. Now, why do we need Christ's strength? Well, first of all, it's because we're weak. We need his strength because we're weak. In our flesh, we are too weak and too proud to properly live out his calling on our lives. And if it was up to us, we would squander the blessings that he's afforded us. We would waste them away. We would be that, that, that wicked steward who buried his talent in the, in the ground in fear. We would waste his resources. And we would waste his strength. See, we need his mighty power. The Bible often refers to, to this mighty power as virtue. And we need his virtue to be of any use in his kingdom. We need power and not, and not just any power. Listen, not just any power. We need divine power, the kind of power that was displayed in the resurrection. That's the kind of power we need. Verse 20 says this, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. That's the kind of power that's available to us. It's resurrection power. We have to know that he has power and strength and that mighty power has been extended to us in our weakness. He knows how weak you are. He knows, how, he knows that you're completely unable, which is why he needs wisdom and, uh, wisdom and knowledge and understanding to reveal to us that we need his strength. He's trying to teach us to rely on him in our weakness. He loves the fact that you're weak because your weakness insists that you trust him to fill you with strength. Well, second, second, we need his strength because we're always under attack. The Christian life is constantly under attack. And the more value you have to the kingdom, the more ministry devotion that you have, the more yielded you are to the king, the greater the target on your back. the greater the devil's desire to undermine what God's doing in your life. Living in this world as believers means that we're constantly under the threat of the enemy. Ephesians 6, 11 refers to the wiles of the devil. It tells us of the spiritual wickedness that seeks to undermine God's work in our life. We need power. And not just any power. We need the kind of power that overcomes the enemy. Verse 21 of Ephesians 1 says, Far above... This is his power. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. He's got power over every other power. <laughs> Devilish or worldly or otherwise. A wicked boss, a wicked family member, and a wicked demon that seeks to, to cause you to sin to betray the one that loves you, the one that wants to see you fall, the one wants to see you weaken, to see your testimony uh, 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 scrutinized and, 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 and broken. And Satan wants to see you devoured. He wants to see you overcome with your flesh. Well, what do you do about that? You trust in the one who's got the power to overcome all those things. You know, a lot of us, you know, we pray, but we don't pray enough for God's protection. This is one of the things I've realized just recently in dealing with all the counseling stuff that I'm seeing. There's so little of it that I can explain. Sometimes in counseling sessions, I meet with people, and there's no explanation for the way that they feel. They're talking about, you know, different things, and there's like no, there's no reality to it whatsoever. Like contextually, I'm listening to it, I'm trying to place it, I'm trying to understand it, and it's just that they feel bad. They just feel bad. You know, the, things, the thing that I've realized just recently is that I don't do enough praying that God would protect you emotionally. That's what I've discovered over the last couple of weeks is that I don't do enough praying that God would make you holy and protect you from unholy behavior. That God would protect you from temptation. This is something I'm learning as your pastor. I wonder, do you pray for God's protection? Do you pray that his power would overcome all of the other powers 
that seek to interfere with your walk. The third thing, the reason we need his strength is that we have no authority. This is where we'll end. We have no authority. In and of ourselves, we have no authority in spiritual matters whatsoever. We are small. We are feeble. We fail in our oversight of the church. We fail in ministry. We fail in our relationships. And if it was up to us, this church, along with every other church in the world, over the history of the church, would have been disbanded long ago. It would have fallen apart. Without him, it would have fallen apart a long time ago. This weakness is memorialized in the disciples' failure to cast out a demon. Matthew 17, 14 says this. And when they were come to the multitude, there came, a, 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 came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. What power did the disciples have without Christ? None. None. They had no authority over the demonic host. We need power. And not just any power, we need the kind of power that unifies the kingdom in a single authority. We need a mighty power that's going to set all things right. Ephesians 1.22 says, And hath put all things under his feet. That's the kind of power that he has. And gave to him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Philippians says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that all that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. See, what the disciples didn't understand and what we fail to understand so often is it's not good enough to just bear his name. But we must believe in the power and the authority behind his name. And so I've, I've gone long. We're going to end here. Worship team, come up. Forgive me. I, f- uh, I felt like I struggled to communicate today. I don't, I don't know whether or not you heard from the Lord today. But here's the invitation that I want to present to you. Okay? This is the part. This is your part. This is the part where you get to make a decision about what you believe about what we talked about from God's word. If you're not saved... If you don't know Jesus Christ, then where is the hope of his calling in your life? There's no hope. What are you hoping? What are you hoping in? Again, many of us are hoping in a good job. We're hoping in a wife or a husband. We're hoping in a good career. We're hoping to own a home one day, which seems really unlikely with the way the economy looks. But you can, but listen to me, you can hope in all those things. Good luck with that. If that's where you want to put your hope in this life, you know, you got 75 years, 80 years if it's good, you know, and uh, you could take a crack at that and you could put your hope in that. Or you can ask yourself, is there something more to this life? Is there a possibility of forgiveness of sin? Is there an eternal realm? Is what the Bible says about heaven and hell, are those things true? Listen to me. I've staked all my hope and his calling. And he's calling you to do the same. His invitation to you is that you would do the same, that you would believe him just that way. And if you have in your heart right now a conviction to do that, when we start worshiping, come forward and grab a counselor. They want to meet with you and they want to talk to you about what the Bible says about your salvation. You can be born again, you can be saved, and you can put your hope in his calling. There are so many of us who've forgotten that though. There's many of us in this room who've been Christians for quite some time and we've forgotten the hope of his calling. We need to settle that. We need to make it right today. There's many of us who have, over time, have come to a place where we've refused his divine power in our life. And there's many of us, let's be honest, you've forgotten, you've forgotten how much God loves you. And if we're going to have a proper identity, if we're going to see ourselves the right way, We need to settle these things before the Lord. We need knowledge and wisdom and understanding. We need his insight.
Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this people. And God, again, I, 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 you know, uh, I had a lot to cover. Maybe it was too much. Maybe it was too much. I don't know. But I'm asking you for help because there are people in this room and there are souls that you love, uh, that, that, that you care for so deeply. And I would ask that you would speak to them in the quiet of their heart right now and that they would discover their hope in you. They would discover their strength in you. They would discover their love in you right now. So God, do what you want to do. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.